History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is White History. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black woman. Corporations are treated like people, and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. Hey ho, let's go. This is not Mark Allen Derry. This is Kenny Francis with Resistance Radio. Uh, Mark Allen is not with me today. He's actually on Facebook Messenger right now, messaging me and uh, backseat driving. Um, he was unable to make it in today, as anyone in the city today knows that that rainstorm was pretty insane. Um, and a lot of folks are stuck where they are, and Mark Allen is one of them. He was unable to make it into the station, and I just so happened to be lucky enough that my path to the station from work was one that was dry. Uh, we got to do something about this flooding. We just have to do something. We feel we live in Atlantis now, and I guess we should all just buy boats because it's it feels like every time it rains, this this is the outcome, and, and we know exactly who this is hurting the worst. Our poorest residents who are unable to get to work, who are able, unable to get home right now. Um, I'm thinking a lot right now about kids that are having trouble getting home from school or parents that are having trouble picking up their kids. Uh, this is why the mayor's fair share compromise is really important and which why I, I hope that she keeps pushing for more money and we need to support her as a city in that because it doesn't matter if we have tourists coming if the city is underwater. It doesn't matter if we become Atlantis. And Atlantis is not going to be as fun in real life as it is in the movies. It'll be more like Waterworld with uh, Kevin Costner, if you guys have ever seen that one, which was pretty depressing. Um, anyway, unfortunately, like I said, Mark Allen will not be able to join us today uh, in person, but he will be texting me his questions. Um, I'm going to be continuing our series that we've been doing on New Orleans education, and I guess this one's going to be more like a lecture rather than a conversation. Um, and I think Mark Allen often talks about how much I love the sound of my own voice. So this is actually gonna be pretty fun. Um, I do want to give a couple of notes first. Um, for folks who are listening, who are looking for part two of the series that we did last week, um, you can only find that currently on the website, which is whivfm.org. Uh, we had some issues, some technical issues getting that specific episode uploaded to Spotify and iTunes. I had a friend of mine text me a little while ago saying she was looking for it on Spotify and couldn't find it. That's because it's not there. Um, sorry about that. And we have got it corrected. And this episode and all the episodes moving forward will be up on Spotify. Uh, what are the ways that you can help us um, 
avoid technical difficulties such as this is by becoming a member and donating. The more funds that we have to support this community radio, you know, we could hire a IT guy or someone that's an expert that can sort of like um, anticipate issues like this and make sure that they don't happen. Uh, but like I said, that last episode, the part two of the New Orleans education series that we did last week it is up. It is on the website. You can find it at whivfm.org. It's not on Spotify at this time. We're going to keep trying on that one. But this episode and the ones moving forward will be. So with that, I want to jump in to what we're going to talk about today. So today we're going to talk about uh, part three. I'm calling this part unified but decentralized, which describes what our school district is like now. It's a unified system, but it's still decentralized. Before we jump into that I do want to correct a couple of things that we talked about in part two. So I'm going to take a little bit of time. So if you remember, what we talked about in part one is we covered the time period from 1995, which was when the original charter school law in Louisiana was passed, up until Katrina. And then in part two, we dived into things that were happening in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, probably one of the two most important things that happened being, one, the passage of Act 35, which made it so that the state could take over as many of New Orleans schools as possible at the same time. Um, and the second thing that happened was the summary firing of roughly 4,000 teachers, mostly who were black women in the city, um, which devastated the black middle class in this city and something that we've been like trying to work to recover to. Um, and it also created racial tensions within our teaching force that, could, that persists to this day and it also destroyed the union so it did a lot of damage uh and we talked about that and sort of the other issues around that that happened post katrina what we're going to talk about today is i'm going to start to bring us up toward the present where we're going to talk about um what happened when conversations started around making sure about re reunification re, sorry reunifying the city schools because where we left off there were four different types of schools there were schools that were under RSD, the Recovery School District, and then there was two different types of those. There was RSD direct-run schools that were run like traditional public schools and that the RSD staff was directly running, and there were RSD charter schools, which are schools that had been chartered out to charter management organizations. And then the other type of schools that they were was there were schools, there was this much smaller group of schools that were under the jurisdiction of the Orleans Parish School Board, and they had two different types of schools. They had OPSB direct run schools that were run like traditional public schools, and they had OPSB charter schools. And so at this time in New Orleans, you had four different types of schools. We're right around like 2009, 2010. Um, two things I want to correct about what we talked about last time. One, I mistakenly said that Bessie, the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, which is the state's school board, had seven members. I was wrong in that. Uh, I misspoke. There's actually 11 members. Eight of them are elected just like other statewide positions are elected. In fact, two of those locally is in a ballot this fall on October 12th. That would be Bessie 1 and Bessie 2. Three, the remaining three seats are decided by and appointed by the governor. So the governor gets three seats on Bessie and the other eight are elected locally. So that's how Bessie is made up. Um, another thing that I want to correct that I misspoke on is at one point in that second episode, I misspoke and I said that 90% of schools were failing before the storm. It was 63. And I was thinking about something else when I said 90. It was 63% of the schools right before Katrina were an F school um, and had been F schools for several years running. The last thing I want to correct is I listened back to that last episode myself, and 
when Mark Allen and I were talking about Act 35, the act that the state used to take over the majority of schools in New Orleans during that special session that happened, the emergency session that happened in November 2005, right after the storm, I listened back and it wasn't the clearest explanation I've ever given on this show, so I'm sorry about that, and I want to try to clear that up right here. So I'm going to read to you guys actually the text that I found on Act 35 because I think it's easier to just like read it to you guys. So here's what Act 35 said. Now remember, Act 35 was passed in an emergency session that was called of the Louisiana legislature after Hurricane Katrina. So we're in November 2005. Um, the Orleans Parish School Board, like many of the other city agencies, were scrambling and not, not really sure how they're going to respond to this, this catastrophe that happened. And they were publicly debating whether or not they were even going to open school for the remainder of that school year. Um, and so then in November 2005, the Louisiana, the Louisiana legislature passed Act 35, which, which said that a district could become academically in crisis. So it created a new label for schools um, saying they could be academically in crisis if at least 30 of the schools in the district was failing or if 50 percent or more of the students in the district were enrolled in failing schools. So to apply that to the New Orleans context, like I said just now. 63% of New Orleans schools were were classified as failing right before the storm under the old system um, of, of looking at schools. And the very basic way to describe that is if you had an SBS score, the school performance score that was below a 60, you were considered an F and failing. So 63% of schools in New Orleans right before Katrina, that's where they're at. Things were not going well. And then this Act, Act 35 was passed that said – that if at least 30 of the schools in the district or 50% or more of the students enroll, were enrolled in failing schools, then your district was going to be labeled academically in crisis. And so this legislation was written with New Orleans in mind because everyone knew 63% of the schools were considered failing already. And so this made it so that automatically, once this passed, New Orleans was considered a district that was academically in crisis. And then what they did, they, what they also did with that is once you were labeled academically in crisis, then it changed what how your schools would be deemed, deemed failing. And so before Act 35, you were deemed failing if your SPS score, your school performance score, was a 60 or worse. But what this said is that if your district got labeled as academically in crisis, then the bar for being failing would be compared to the state average rather than that 60. And the state average was an 87 at the time. And so essentially what this did is it said, New Orleans, you are now academically in crisis. And instead of saying that you're failing if you're at 60 or below, we're going to say you're failing if you are below the state average, which was 87. And given that 63% of our schools were below 60, you can imagine a lot of schools in the city were now all of a sudden eligible for a complete takeover by the RSD. In fact... To wit, the number was 114 out of 100, roughly 130 schools that existed in New Orleans pre-Katrina. 114 were now eligible for takeover by the Recovery School District when Act 35 passed. Um, and like I said, when we talked about Act 35 in part two of this, it is really, really difficult to make an argument that says that Act 35 and Act 9 before it were not specifically written to do this to New Orleans. This was specifically written with New Orleans in mind and specifically written with the intention of being able, having the legal ability to take over as many New Orleans schools as possible at one time. And 
they succeeded in that. They were able to take over 114 schools from the OPSB and put them under the purview of the RSD. And like I said in hour two of this, the last hour that we did on this, because of the displacement and the low population right after the storm, they weren't reopening 114 all, all at once, but the RSD did now have control of basically the whole district. And there was a very small group, less than 20 schools, that were left under OPSB's jurisdiction. And the, OP, the OPSB reopened most of those schools as charter schools. And so that brings us up to where what we're talking about today, which is where the system went next and where it stands now. So right around 2012-ish and getting, getting closer towards like the present, conversation started about the reunification of schools because, as you can imagine, having two different school districts with four different types of schools was very confusing for everyone. At the time I was a teacher and I was very confused about what was going on. And so conversation started to happen of at some point the schools needed to be returned to local control and at some point we needed to unify the two different districts into one district with one set of rules and you know one oversight body and every, everything like that. And so in 2016, the Louisiana legislature passed a law known as Act 91. And what Act 91 said is it required all schools that were under the recovery school district to return under the jurisdiction of the Orleans Parish School Board by July 1st, 2018. And if they wanted to, schools could return, voluntarily return to OPSB jurisdiction on their own if they wanted to. But even if they didn't want to, everyone had to do it by July 1st, 2018. And it also created a uh, unification advisory committee to oversee this process and this committee also had the power to halt the process if necessary if they felt that the different activities that they set out that needed to complete be completed before unification happened then they could halt the progress of unification and you know require them to do something different that included charter management leaders it included superintendent lutus incomplete sorry they included the superintendent of the RSD at the time, and it also included um, the person who was running the Urban League at the time. So those are the folks that sat on this committee. Uh, and this committee put out a plan that says, like, here's here's what we're going to do and the different activities we're going to do to transition to create this transition process to get everyone back under the same house. One of the major things that they did was they said that at the time, OPSB had a performance framework in which schools were held accountable to, and RSD had a different one. And they didn't say the same thing, and they didn't have the same standards. And that's confusing. And so one of the activities that was laid out by the Unification Committee, um, and this is actually something I worked on while I was at OPSB, I was part of the team that was working on this, is OPSB had to come up with a unified performance framework that says, now that everyone's going to be under the same house, Everyone needs to have the same rules. And so we created the Charter School Accountability Framework, which is what now we use to measure the performance of all schools that are now all under OPSB jurisdiction. There's a couple of important things to note about Act 91 and what it did. If you're remembering back when we talked about Act 35, the powers that Act 35 gave to the RSD and, and taking over schools and, and being able to charter them out were technically temporary. They were technically temporary powers because the idea was that after five years, the school should be returned to local control. But it took a lot more than five years for that to happen. And so technically, Act 35 was supposed to be temporary. So what Act 91 did is it made it permanent. What Act 91 effectively did is the autonomy and the changes to our system 
that happened when schools were chartered out were codified into state law. And Act 91 in state law codified the autonomy that we gave to charter schools. And so it went from this temporary measure that they had taken under you know the cover of Katrina and it made it this state law. Another big change that Act 91 did was it changed the balance of power between the superintendent of schools and the local board. Um, the biggest thing was that previously the way the law was written was that the authorization process, that means deciding which schools get approved for charters, what the renewal terms are, whether a school is deserving of having their charter revoked or whether you're going to close them for poor performance or do what we call a transformation, which is you take it from one group of people who are not doing a good job and give it to a different operator. Um, that power in the original way that the law was written was supposed to be for the local school board. But one of the things that Act 91 did is it actually took that power away from the local school board and gave it to the superintendent. The superintendent, And so the superintendent of schools now had the power to do all those things I just said. And the OPSB board, they could override the superintendent, but they needed to have a two-thirds vote to override anything that he tried to do. And so it gave the superintendent much more power compared to the board. Uh, and right here, I'm going to pause to do a brief station ID. If you're tuning in, you listen to 1023 FM WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. I am Kenny Francis. Uh, my co-host, Mark Allen, is not here today because unlike, I'm saying not unlike, because like most people in the city, he is trapped where he is because of that storm that we had. Um, and he's unable to make it in. And he is reliably Facebook messaging me and backseat driving the whole time. So his hand is being felt even though he's not here. Um, what we're talking about today is we're continuing our series on New Orleans schools and the history of how the reforms happened. Um, today, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about unification and Act 91, which really drove unification and where it brought us to today. And one of the, my goals for today is to describe what our current system looks like, because I think one of the things I saw a lot when I was working at OPSP is people simply don't understand what the current system is. And it's I don't blame them. It's confusing. And so I, I'm hoping to explain it in a way that's going to be very easy for folks to understand today. So Act 91 passes, the superint and essentially the effect that Act 91 has is that ultimately it resulted in the charter schools being able to keep much of the autonomy that they were given when they were created, um, and it solidified that in state law. And also it shifted the balance of power locally out of m more power was taken out of the hands of the elected board um, at OPSB, and it was shifted over to the superintendent. Um, and here I want to pause and I want to give an opinion and be like very, very clear that this is opinion and that this opinion is my opinion alone and does not represent the opinions of anyone at the station, the nonprofit that runs it, Nosita, or any of my previous employers or my current employer. This is just my opinion. My opinion on what we did with Act 91 is that we gave schools too much autonomy. Um, I think that some school autonomy is a good idea, but I think that we gave we codified into law too much autonomy for schools. And I think we've seen a lot of issues since then um, that have sort of shown that. And in a little bit, when I get deeper into explaining the difference between a traditional district and our district, I'm going to be able to tell you guys some reasons why. The second opinion I want to give here is I do think that giving more power to the superintendent rather than to the elected board was a good decision because I come from a mindset that, Education is a very, very difficult thing 
to be in charge of. And like every other service, it takes a lot of very seasoned, very hardworking professionals to be able to make decisions that are equitable and that are best for children. And my problem with the school board, the elected board having more power than the superintendent does is the superintendent it has to be a professional. Like whether you agree or disagree with the decisions that Dr. Lewis makes, Dr. Lewis is a career educator who it's hard to say that he's not qualified for the job. You can you can say you can have a whole conversation about you know, how you feel that he's doing with the job, but it's hard to argue he's not qualified for the job given his his career in education and first being a teacher, then being a school leader for a very long time and also working at a CML level. He ran, um, he ran, he ran Algiers Charter. My problem with, ha- with the OPSB board having more power than the superintendent who is going to be a career professional in education is that you're giving power of education policy over to people who are elected and there's no standard at all for their election. You don't have to have any sort of qualification to run for office for school board. You just have to be able to get like 5,000 votes. And then all of a sudden you get to decide what good education policy is. If there was more standard for, you know, if it said that you had to be a teacher or a former school leader or have some sort of quality or even like a master's in public policy, like if there was some sort of qualification other than you live in a district, you can raise some money from some rich friends, you can get 5,000 votes to win your seat. I would be okay with that, but I don't think that education policy should be in the hands of folks who many of them don't even have any classroom experience. Um, I'm not going to go on record about like how many of them currently do because I actually can't remember, but it's definitely not a majority. It's not a majority of our board currently or even ever that has classroom experience, and that's kind of a problem when you have people who are not educators making decisions for educators and for children. Um, and so... The decision to give the superintendent more power than the board, I actually agree with that. I think that like the professionals should be in charge because education is hard and that you are not a you're not a I think part of the reason why education is so hard to get the funding and the respect that we need in the field is that everyone thinks that they're an expert in education just because you went to school. That's not true. Like you're not an expert on medicine just because you went to the doctor once or because you got a shot once. You're not an expert of law just because you you've been on trial. Like there's a reason why doctors and lawyers are the people in charge of those situations. And it's the same thing in education. The teachers and the educators should be in charge. You shouldn't just be some random person getting to make the policy. Um, and so I, I think that like giving the superintendent more power is actually a good idea. And I think there are other ways to involve the public in the process um, that aren't just giving it to this board that there's no qualifications for. Um, so what I want to do now is I want to really, really plainly lay out for folks the difference between what our system is, which is a charter school system, and what you would typically see in a public school system. And I created a bit of a flow chart here, which I intended it to be for Mark Allen, so it would be simple for him, but I'm going to use it for you guys. So when you think about running schools, there's a couple of key areas that you have to worry about. There is the areas of operations, so things like providing transportation, facility management, budgeting, procurement, purchasing, that type of things. Um, another thing that you have to think about is like enrollment. So like student registration, student registration, um, student transfers, things like expulsions when that happens. Um, another area is programmatic. So the basic stuff of a school, what curriculum are you going to use? What's the instructional practice you're going to use with your teachers? What's your school calendar going to be? What's your daily schedule going to be? What does your people progression plan look like? Um, how are you going to do special education evaluation and servicing? 
Um, there's also HR and staffing, so hiring and firing, salaries, the terms of those salaries, the terms of the contracts, employee evalu- evaluation, and performance management. So all of those things that I just talked about in a traditional district, all of those things are handled by the district. The central office in a very top-down, traditional bureaucratic set, way decides that for you. So your operations, like your buses and your facility management, your budgeting, your procurement, all that is handled centrally. And typically school districts, traditional school districts, you go to most of the parishes in Louisiana and you got like offices full of people whose like job is it to just like do that, um, you know, in Jefferson Parish, there'll be somebody whose job it is to just do procurement for the district. There'll be somebody whose job it is to make sure that the buses are running on time, etc. Um, another thing that that would be handled at the district level would be enrollment. So, if you lived in a traditional district, traditional districts usually use zoned um, enrollment, which means you are you have to go to the school that's in your neighborhood, the one that you're zoned for. And we talked briefly before about like how that this can be problematic because if you're in a resource poor area, you're going to be in a resource poor school. And if you're unable to essentially buy your way into a better school by buying a house in a nicer neighborhood with a nicer school, you're kind of screwed because you're stuck going to your district school, your school that you're zoned for. And if you're zoned for a bad school, you just have to go there and you have no other choice. And that's how it goes in a traditional district. I grew up in a district like this in New York where the school that I was zoned for was a really, really bad one. And my parents had to make a decision of sending me there or trying to move to go somewhere else. Another thing that the district would do for you is all the programmatic things I talk about, what curriculum you have, what's your schedule, what's your calendar, all of that would be done centralized at the central office by a central office team. And then the last thing that they would do for you is they would do all the centralized decision-making regarding hiring, firing, salaries, and all that. Typically, in most districts, that would happen in conjunction with the teacher union because in a lot of districts, there is a teacher union that has a collective bargaining agreement with the school system that says, you know, our employees are going to get paid this, you're going to have these benefits, this sort of seniority is going to be going to be controlled in hiring, firing, etc. And then the last thing, which it does not really apply to a traditional school district, is authorization. In a traditional district, there isn't any sort of like renewal, revocation, closure process because the schools aren't open and closed like that in a traditional district. In a traditional district, the schools are run directly by the local school board and failing schools, they don't like close or get transformed. The district is just responsible for trying to make them better. And so the district typically will just like fire the principal or try a new curriculum or fire a bunch of teachers or if it gets bad enough, fire the superintendent and try to just make reform, 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 reform. Um, and what we what is possible in that scenario is that you could be stuck in a failing school for kind of forever if they don't figure out how to make it better. Um, because, again, you're zoned in, so you can't go anywhere else. So here's what's different about our system in relation to those things. So charter schools must manage their operations functions autonomously, including running public bid processes, because, because charter schools are public nonprofits that are receiving public dollars. If they're spending a certain amount of money, it has to go out for a public bid. It has to be a public process. So, for example, every charter school in the city, when they're doing their bus contracts, it has to go out to public bid, and they have to follow public bid laws because the amount of money that that costs to sign a bus contract is governed by that. Um, and so charter schools have to do that on their own. They have to, Whether it's contracting out for the bus provider or for the person that's going to come fix your HVAC mu- mu- um, machine when it breaks 
um, budgeting has to be done on their own, procurement, purchasing, all of that, the charter schools have to do that themselves. Another thing that the charter schools have to do themselves is they get to decide all the programmatic things. So the curriculum, instructional practice, their calendar, their schedule, um, their special education evaluation and servicing, all of that they are, they are responsible for and have autonomy over. And something that we have in New Orleans is there's a thing called LEAs, which stands for Local Education Agencies. And typically the LEA in a school district is the school board. You go to most of the parishes and there's only one LEA and the LEA and who is responsible for all of the responsibilities an LEA has is just the school board. But in New Orleans, what we have are independent LEAs. So all of the charter schools are individual independent LEAs, which means they have the rights and responsibilities. One of the biggest ones that they have is doing special education evaluation and servicing. Special education is largely paid for by federal dollars. And those federal dollars typically go to a school board, and then they spend it based upon the need in the city. In our city, those federal dollars for kids that are evaluated for and become eligible for special education services, the schools get that money directly, and they have the they have to decide how to budget and spend it and they also have the responsibility of making sure that those services are provided to each child um the other thing that charters have autonomy over is their staffing they have autonomy over hiring firing salaries contracts terms of those contracts performance management all of that and they could also choose to have a contract with a union if they wanted to uh, a few of our charters in the city actually do have that. Luster Charter is one that has a contract with their with a union. Um, their teachers have unionized at the at their school level. Um, another one that comes to mind is um, I believe the teachers at Ben Franklin High School are unionized as well. And so every charter in this city could have a contract with their teachers. Uh, their teachers could unionize and have a contract, but it's also the charter gets to decide whether or not they even want to negotiate that. So. There's a couple of things I want to note in here that are different, though. So one of the things that the charters do not have control over, and this is a common misnomer, is enrollment. So enrollment, each charter does not have control over which kids come to their school. Um, most people have heard of One App, and I'm not going to go too deeply into One App because part four of this series is we were we were joined. We actually recorded it yesterday. We were joined by a good friend of mine and a former colleague, um, Amy Grainer, who was one of the people who helped run One App for years. She did an hour with Mark Allen and I that we recorded and that we'll be playing next week in which she explains One App and what it's trying to do and what its purpose is. But the basic thing I'll say here is that when you're enrolling your kid in a school in New Orleans, you fill out a One App, it goes into a, an algorithm, and the algorithm matches kids to schools, and then your placement is made. And once a kid is placed in the school, then the school has to accept them. Um, a second thing that schools do not have control over is transfers, so kids switching schools. So if a child, for whatever reason, wants to change schools, they have to go through a process in which they essentially fill out some paperwork and there's like questions that are asked and then obviously there has to be space for them at their new school, but that's also handled by Enroll NOLA by one app. And if there's space at the new school, your kid gets space at the new school and now your kid goes there. But schools don't have any control over that and if a school if a kid is getting transferred to your school and there's a space for them you got to take them um and the last thing that's that schools don't have control over enrollment wise is around expulsions schools are not allowed to make 
um, autonomous decisions of whether or not a child has committed an expellable offense. In order to expel a child from a school in New Orleans, you have to go through a process with a department that was created at the Orleans Parish School Board called the Student Hearing Office. And essentially what happens is, let's say child A does something that the school feels is an expellable offense. Um, they have to fill out paperwork and provide supporting evidence and documentation that this child did this thing that is that's considered a expellable offense. And the student hearing office has given out guidance. It's like, here's a list of the things that are expellable offenses. Here's a list of things that are not expellable offenses. And if you're saying that something is an expellable offense, you have to prove it to us. And what happens is the school submits paperwork to the student hearing office, and then a process happens in which the parent and the child is brought in, and they go over sort of like the evidence. It's essentially kind of like a trial where there's a hearing in which it says, here's what the school says that the child did that they believe is an expellable offense. Here's the evidence. Child and parent, you now have a, an opportunity to respond. And then at the student hearing office, the staff there, um, there's a few staff members there who essentially oversee the hearings. They ultimately make a determination where the determination could be the child that is deemed that it is an expellable offense and the child is expelled from the school and then the child has to get placed in a different school or the they say that this is not an expellable offense and they reject it and then the child gets sent back to the school and those decisions are made on a case-by-case basis depending on what happened and the documentation and all of the factors there. But the schools don't have control over the outcome of that. All they can do is submit the documentation and then it's out of their hands. And so those are the two things they don't have control over is they don't have control over registering students or – sorry, three things. Registering students, transferring students, or the process for expulsion. They, they participate in a process with that. Um, so now that I've explained that, there's a couple things I want to go over, but I have to do a station ID and Mark Allen is messaging me. Um, if you're tuning in, you're listening to 1023 FM WHIV. I'm Kenny Francis. This is Resistance Radio. Mark Allen is not with us today. He was unable to make it into the station because of flooding. Um, lucky enough, I was able to make it, so we were able to do the show. What I'm talking about today is we're doing part three of our series, New Orleans Education, and I'm in the middle of explaining how our current system works. And a little bit a while ago, I was talking about Act 91 and the changes that that made. So now that I've explained those things about how the system works, there's a couple of things I want to talk, a couple of issues I want to talk about in here. Um, before, when I was talking about Act 91 and what it codified into law, um, I talked about how I felt that schools were given too much autonomy, and I want to go a little bit more into that. So a couple of things that I mentioned in my the exp- explanation that I just gave uh, that I feel that schools have too much autonomy over is one is operations. The fact that as a charter school leader, you are worrying about what bus contract you have and which company you're contracting with doesn't make any sense. School leaders should be worrying about the people in their building, the students in their building, and providing education. Having to worry about what your bus contract is is not something that we should be doing on a individual school level. It also creates really bad economy of scale, where an issue that we have in the city is that schools are spending exorbitant amounts of money out of the budget every year simply busing kids to school because we have a system where school kids can choose to go wherever they want in the city as long as there's space for them. So a kid that lives way out in Mishu, if they want to, can go to a school in Hollygrove. And the law says that if the kid lives 
more than a mile away from the school, you got to provide bus service. And I very much believe that because you can't talk about choice if kids don't have access and you don't provide transportation. But with everyone contracting individually for their bus contracts, you can imagine the bus companies are making a lot of money because there is no economies of scale. There is no sort of bargaining that you could do by saying, hey, if you want to do business with the school district, you got to give us a good price. In fact, what the bus companies get to do is they get to say, this is the price. You just got to pay it because the law says you have to provide the service. So what are you going to do? Not provide busing and get in trouble? And so what we see is I what I would say are artificially high bus costs because the bus companies can simply do it. There are 80 schools all individually having contracts with like five bus companies. And the bus companies are just making a lot of money because the schools can't do anything to bargain down those prices because they all have to do it. And so it would make sense for the school district to centralize busing and say to the bus companies, you want to be in businesses in this town? Here is the price that we are willing to pay as a district. And there's going to be 80 schools on this contract. And that would drive the cost down. The reason why our costs are so high right now for busing is everyone doing it on their own. So to me, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and that should be a centralized function that the district should do for schools. I think on in that same vein, it sort of makes all of the types of things that schools have to contract out, like facility maintenance, um, like procurement, like like all of that. Why, why are they having to do that? That should be a centralized function. Like a school leader shouldn't be having to figure out, you know, the chiller went down. What contract do we have for someone to come out and fix the AC? The, the schools don't own the buildings. The buildings are owned by the district. So the district should do that for them. That should be a centralized function. And every single school in this city has an operations manager who basically spends all their time dealing with the contracts and dealing with maintaining a facility. And that's something that could and should be done by the landlord, the people who own the building, the school board. That's that for me, that's sort of like a wasteful, um, that's a, that's a, that's a wasteful decentralization there. There's no reason to decentralize that when it's not like they own all their own buildings. The buildings are owned by the Orleans Parish School Board. Um, and so I think that like there's things like that operationally that don't make any sense to decentralize them and that are actually leading to financial waste and also probably lower quality because one of the things, particularly around the busing conversation, is that it's hard to ensure the quality of the service you're getting from buses when you have all these different bus contracts and everyone's trying to get lower prices where the bus companies don't have any incentive to make their service better. So if the bus is unreliable and it shows up late or they're not new, I mean, a big thing in our city is that we're just now getting to the point where people are, where schools are starting to be able to get the bus companies to install AC on their buses. There's no way that a child should be riding a bus from Mishu to Hollygrove and not have AC. When you don't have a way to control quality by being able to bargain centrally with the bus companies and and guarantee a certain quality, that's the type of stuff that you get. And also you get stuff that's like bad. Like you get you get bad actors in there that you find out in horrible ways. And we saw several news stories this spring where there were several bus companies that were doing things they weren't supposed to. And because of the decentralized nature of the system, it was really hard to catch it until something bad happens. And when you're dealing with children, Personally, I want to err on the side of being able to catch things before bad things happen and not find out by bad things happening. Um, I think another thing that we've decentralized that I think was a wrong move 
is I want to speak specifically about special education. Special education is incredibly important and it's also incredibly difficult and incredibly special specialized. And when we allowed schools on an individual basis to do their own special education evaluation and service providing or contracting that out themselves, we lowered the quality because it's hard to ensure the quality when that's a decentralized function that everyone has to do on their own. And I think, frankly, it is way too important of a function and of a service that we're providing to kids and families that we are federally required to provide. Um, These are kids' civil rights we're talking about. People forget that before IDA was passed, IDA is the, the law that created funding at a federal level for special education, kids with disabilities just didn't get to go to school. Schools would just say, we didn't have we don't have services for you. But after IDA passed, which by the way, our current um, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos doesn't even know what it is. Um, without without IDA, those kids would not be getting services. And the, and what IDA guarantees is that those kids have the right to be identified for their need and to get services um, that provide the supports that they need. And it's hard to ensure quality in that when you have this disparate system of folks doing the evaluation process and the servicing process on their own. And I, I believe firmly that when it comes to special education evaluation and service providing, that should be a centralized function. We should be centralizing that function at the district so that we can ensure that the evaluation process is fair and also as high quality as it should be. And that when the services are then provided, that we both have economy of scale to be able to, prov- to afford the services and also be able to ensure the quality of the service provider. And it's much harder to do that when you've got 80 different schools doing 80 different processes trying to provide 80 different types of services. That's, that's simply harder to ensure quality. And I think special education evaluation and servicing is just way too important. It is way too elemental to the provision of quality education to not centralize and and ensure the quality of that. And I think that's a mistake that we made. I don't think that our charter schools should be independent LEAs and have control over the special education evaluation and servicing on their own. Um, I think it's a great thing that we got right that we have centralized enrollment. I think that schools not being able to choose their kids is the right move. And it's the way that you ensure equity because what you'll hear in the conversation we have with Amy in the next episode is before we had one app, schools were allowed to essentially create their own registration processes, which could create barriers for people being able to attend their school because they could say things like, well, if you want to register to go here, technically we are open enrollment. Technically anyone can go here. But in order to register for a spot here, you got to come here on the specific day during the work day and you got to come to the, to the school in person. And right there, that cuts out anybody that can't leave work. It cuts out anybody that can't get that can't leave work or get time off. It cuts off anybody that doesn't have transportation. And what you start to do is you start to be able to pick your kids by essentially profiling the type of families that you allow to come and register by putting up barriers. And what One App does is One App removes those barriers because everyone in the city fills out One App, and the spots that are available are equitably given out based off of an algorithm that gives priority to those um, most in need. Um, and I think that's fair. I think it's when you have a limited number of quality seats, the fairest thing you can do is give them out equitably and not and ensure that simply because you have privilege or money or the ability to leave work that you get those best slots. That's, that's not fair. That's not what equity is. 
Um, I think it's a very good thing that the superintendent of schools has to go and fill out a one app, just like everyone else. Dr. Lewis has a child. Um, the child's in, in high school, and he had to fill out a one app to get his kid in high school like everybody else. I think that's fair. Um, and I think that's I think doing centralized enrollment is an important thing when you're in a system that you don't have enough quality seats for everyone. And that's the reality we're living in. The reality we're living in is there is literally enough seats in schools for every child in the city to go. But that's not saying that all those seats are quality seats that people actually want their kids to be in. And so when you're living in a reality where quality is limited, the best way to do that is to distribute it equitably and to do that in a way that recognizes the way that people have not gotten what they've needed in the past. The other thing I think that we definitely got right was the creation of the student hearing office and not allowing schools to have the power to just expel kids on their own. And I don't even really have to go into that because if there's one thing that people have heard about in schools and, and issues regarding schools is the school to get prison pipeline and how kids with behavior problems just get kicked out of schools. And it happens all across the country and it happens to the kids that have the highest needs and they just get booted out of the schools and then they're on the street or they're in worse schools. And then we see the things that happen there. And I think having a system that says like, no, there are a few highly illegal things in which it is justified to expel a kid from a school and send them to a different one, but you don't get to decide that on your own and you definitely don't get to decide it subjectively based on whatever you thought happened in the situation. There's a process that you have to follow and then an objective third party makes a decision and then everyone moves forward. I think that's one of the things that we got right with the system. Um, and so those things I think are the types of things when you're thinking about um, the difference between a traditional school district and the one that we have here, there are, it's important to remember them. Um, something I want to talk about is I want to talk briefly about the authorization process. So like I said, in a traditional school district, the school district just runs the school. And if the school is bad, they've just got to figure out how to make it better. And there's no like opening, closure, transfer. None of that happens in a traditional school district. They're just there. Um, and I'm going to pause briefly to do a brief stage study. If you're tuning in, you're listening to 102.3 FM WHIV. My name is Kenny Francis, and this is Resistance Radio. I am talking about uh, New Orleans charter schools and our, the reforms that have happened since Katrina. This is part three of a series that we're doing on New Orleans education. You can find parts one and two by finding our podcast, which you can search Resistance Radio New Orleans. You can find it on our website, whivfm.org, or on Spotify, or iTunes, or Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Uh, my co-host, Mark Allendary, is not here today. He was unable to make it into the station because of the flooding. Um, I'm actually kind of missing having him around, because I'm, I'm, I'm so used to being interrupted every five seconds with something that I'm about to explain. For folks who listen to the show, you guys know that typically what happens is like I'm about to explain it, and then Mark Allen interrupts me with a question that is about what I'm literally about to explain to him. And so I'm, I'm missing being able to like make complete thoughts. And it's kind of like tripping me up being able to make a complete thought without being interrupted. Um, in a lot of ways, doing the show with Mark Allen is kind of like reminds me of teaching. When I was a teacher, I was an early childhood teacher and I taught four-year-olds for most of my career. And four-year-olds, they don't wait for anything. They just interrupt whenever they have something to say. And so... Explaining something to Mark Allen is kind of explaining something to a four-year-old where every five seconds you're interrupted and you never really get to the end of the explanation. But like, I'm very used to it because I did it for seven years with kids. And so it, it prepared me for doing the show with him. Um, and he, he's currently texting me. He's very, very, 
very sad about what I just said. <laughs> oh, you're so mad. That's funny. Um, okay, back to what we're talking about. So this is what our system looks like. And when we talk about the authorizing process, so what's different in a charter school system with authorizing is that if you're go- when a school, a new school is going to be opened, a bunch of things happen. There's a whole process. So there's a process in which you have to apply to get a charter. So you submit an application. It's a very long application. And basically you have to write down, here are all the things that are, is my idea for a school and my academic programming. And here's what I'm going to do about special education. And here's what my focus is going to be. And here's what type of school I'm trying to be. And you submit that to OPSB. And then what happens is there's an internal review process where they review the applications and they basically decide, is this a, a, a quality application? Does, does this plan sound like one that's going to lead to good outcomes for kids? The next step is that the applications that first pass that first basic step, those applications go off to independent evaluators that, the, that OPSB contracts out with that do their own review of the charter applications. And then they sort of like give notes and make a decision on whether or not they think it's a viable application. And then the next step in the process is that there's capacity interviews where the people who have applied for the charter are brought in to in front of a panel of independent um, experts who are typically people who work in school districts in other parts of the country. Like typically the people who are brought in to evaluate to do the capacity interviews are like superintendents from other districts around the country or former superintendents. Like they're usually um, consultants. And at the capacity interviews, they basically ask you a bunch of questions about your application and make you expand on other things, et cetera, et cetera. If you pass that part, then you're at the part where then you're now likely going to be recommended for a charter. Because the next step is if you come out good from the staff review, if you come out good from the independent evaluator review, if you come out good from the capacity interview, those three groups of people are going to make a recommendation to the administration that this is a viable charter application and we think they should be improved. And then the last step is that the superintendent's um, superintendent reviews it and the superintendent makes a recommendation of whether to approve the charter granting of the charter or not approve the granting of the charter um, based upon all of that and also their own prerogative. And then as I explained before, the superintendent by Act 91 was given the power over the authorization process. And so once the superintendent makes a recommendation to approve a charter, that is going to happen unless the board overrides him by two-thirds vote and what we typically see is that by the time everything goes through the process where the superintendent is making a recommendation typically the board does not go against the superintendent it's it is i actually cannot remember an instance in which the board overruled overruled the um the superintendent on a decision specifically around um charter applications and so that's like the beginning of the process so you get your charter and then basically once you get your charter what happens is in order to have a charter, you have to create a nonprofit with a board, a nonprofit board that's a public entity that creates a nonprofit that the, technically what a charter is, is the charter school and their nonprofit that runs them signs a contract with the school board that says, we are giving you authorization to run this charter school for X amount of years. And as long as you follow these rules set forth here in this contract and you meet these standards... Once your time is up, we're going to review this and decide whether to give you another one or not. The typical number is five years. So typically what happens is that if a charter is authorized, you get five years and your performance is reviewed over those five years. 
And if at the end of those five years, you have not gotten in trouble for things you weren't supposed to do, and if you have met the bar, the performance bar that the district set that you have to meet, then you are, are renewed for a number of years compa- like, um, comparative to your performance. So if you're a higher performing school, like so let's say you're an A school, you're eligible to get renewed for much more years. And so there are schools in the city that are A schools that got renewed for up to 10 years. That's a, the, the, the biggest contract you can have is a 10-year contract. Uh, for schools that aren't doing as well, for schools that are barely making the bar for renewal, which is vaguely a D, and I don't have enough time to explain to sort of um, – the complications around which D's are eligible and which D's are not. The, the shortest way I can explain it is that when you come out for renewal, if you are a D school that is showing high growth, meaning that your kids are showing progress, um, not necessarily mastery, but progress, you are, you are eligible for renewal. If you're a D and you don't have high growth and so your absolute performance isn't good and also your kids aren't showing progress, then you are not eligible and you will likely not get renewed. Um, and the renewal terms are dictated based upon how many year, uh, are, your years are based upon how your performance is. So schools like A's get like 10 years. Um, D's typically get three years. You, 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 rare, it's very rare to see. I, actually, no. I, don't, I can't think of a D school that has gotten more than a three-year renewal. And so basically we'll say, okay, here's three more years. You got to do better next time. Um, and if you don't, then you don't get renewed the next time. So when a school is not renewed, there are two things that can happen. So let's say a school gets chartered. Um, they have five years. At the end of that five years, um, they look at the performance and they're an F and they're not good. Um, and so you're not eligible to be renewed. Your contract is not eligible to be renewed. There are two things that can happen there. One thing is that you can be closed, which means literally they like close the doors of the school and you are not allowed to run the school anymore. Um, and then depending on the plans of the district, they might put a different school under a different entity in that building. But typically what happens is if you get closed outright, that school then ceases to exist. And I'm sure anyone listening to this that has paid attention to schools at all can think of a bunch of the schools that used to exist that no longer exist. Um, and that's because that's what happened to them. They failed. Um, the decision was made to not renew their contract and then they were closed. The other thing that could happen is what's known as a transformation. So what a transformation is, is to say, you're not doing a good job running this school. But for reasons that are varied, which are typically just like, what are the needs of the city? Because sometimes we can't afford to close a school outright because we literally need those spots for kids. Um, what happens in a transformation is essentially the adults, the people running the school get fired. You get told like, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't make the grade. Um, this is a failing school. We're going to hand over running of this school to someone else. Um, the more recent examples that folks can probably think of this is schools that have gotten in trouble for doing things like really bad things that they weren't supposed to be doing. There's one in the news that's been in the news recently, which I'm sure everyone can think of that recently was taken from one charter operator and given to another one because they were doing stuff that they weren't supposed to. Um, and so that's what a transformation is when they take away your ability to run the school, when they take away a charter uh, management organization's ability to run the school and they give it to somebody else and say, these people are going to run it instead. That's where transformation is. Uh, something important I want to note about closure. There is something called closing school priority. So if your school gets closed outright, meaning that like your school is no longer going to exist and you're literally going to have nowhere else to go, 
what we have in one app is a thing called closing school priority, which means you get put at the top priority because the idea is because of the trauma, because that's what it is, the trauma of your school failing and your school closing, we are going to give you the best possible chance out of everyone in the system to get into a better school because obviously the worst possible outcome for children who have already been attending a close, a failing school that got closed is to end up in a school that is not better or not that much better or God forbid worse. And so what we do is we give them closing school priority, which means when the, when the one app algorithm is run, those children are given first priority. So they have the best chance to get into the best available seats. And in a system where schools can be opened and closed, I think that's a good idea. I think that's 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 an equitable idea that if you end up in a failing school that gets closed, you should get a, a, a higher chance to get into a better school because we have to support those kids because you're already going to a poor school, and so we need to get you into a better situation. Um, and so a closed school party, I think, is actually a very smart and very equitable thing that the folks who designed one app put into the system to ensure that you just don't have the same kids being shuffled over and over and over into the same like tier of failing schools. Um, and I'm starting to run out, of, run out of time here. So I want to sort of start to wrap this up. So I think today I gave a pretty good explanation and pretty clear explanation of what act 91 is, what the unification of schools was and what the difference between a traditional district and our district is. Um, and so now we have brought ourselves up to the present where we have one system where our system is one where we have one school board, the Orleans Parish School Board, and we have a system of charters where the way it works is that the Orleans Parish School Board creates policies that charter schools have to follow. The superintendent has the power over um, which school, what has the power over the decision-making process of authorization, so which schools open, which schools close. And then from there, the schools have control over basically everything else. They control their budgets. They control their hiring and staffing. They control their facility management. They control their transportation contracts. They control special education evaluation and servicing. The rest of that, they have autonomy at the local level. Um, and before I start to like wrap up and go, I think the thing is when I think about our system, I, I said before about the things that I said that don't really make sense to me at least – for them to be autonomous on, I think something I do very much believe is I do think that like one idea that is a good idea is that schools should have the ability to decide which teachers are best to put in front of their kids and which curriculum is best and what their schedule is going to be because at the every the, the people in the building, the educators, the parents, the principal, those are the ones who know best what those specific school kids need. What kids need at a school in the East are not the same as what kids need in a school in the West Bank, which is not the same as kids need at a school in on in Uptown. And the ability to decide those type of like day-to-day decisions, I do think schools should have that. I do think, though, however, like we've given schools too much autonomy. Um, and with that, I've got like 30 seconds left. And so I just want to say thanks for everybody for tuning in. Uh, this has been Resistance Radio. Um, next week, we will be airing that episode that we did with Amy Grainer talking about one app. And so we'll be having a conversation about school choice and what is good choice and what is bad choice and what happens in a system where you don't have enough good choices and how do you try to make that equitable. Um, you've been listening to Resistance Radio. I'm Kenny Francis. Um, Mark Allen will be back next week. Mark Perry's up next with Mega Music Monday. I did that better than you, Mark Allen. 
See you guys later. Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist.